I've noticed, writes Robin Kammerer, that once some folks attach a scientific label to a being, they stop exploring who it is. Once a person attaches a label to a being, they often stop exploring who it is. How we perceive others and the world around us is conditioned by cultural conceptions, labels, handed down to us from the moment of our birth to the moment when we breathe our last. Although we like to think that our thoughts are our own, this is perhaps the greatest deception. This does not mean that we are not responsible for what we think or believe, especially as it relates to others. It does mean, however, that I cannot see others or the world around me from somewhere other than how I have grown and learned to see through the habits, practices, customs, and people who have shaped my life for better and for worse. Today's gospel is particularly dense. It may not at first appear so, because on the surface there are just two women in need of healing. One is 12 years old, and another, likely in her 30s or 40s, has been suffering for 12 years. Each of them received the healing power of Jesus. Neither of them asked for it. One is the daughter of a synagogue leader, someone on the inside, a known figure. She's Jairus' daughter. The other, well, she's someone's daughter, but she has been labeled an outcast for the past 12 years, touched only by physicians who, as Matthew and Mark both tell us in their Gospels, have basically mangled her body and taken all of her money. When all her money is gone, she is abandoned by the physicians. It's a familiar story in the Gospels, but Mark's telling of this healing encounter reveals a good deal more about what Jesus is doing when he heals someone. And what Jesus says to the hemorrhaging woman caught me off guard as I read and reread this passage over and over again this week. Jairus comes to Jesus. He's heard about all the commotion. And even though he's a leader of the synagogue, his daughter is on the brink of death. The temple elders have spread the word to leave this Jesus alone, that he's deceiving people. But for Jairus, his daughter matters a great deal more than anything he might suffer at the hand of temple authorities. Unlike the Pharisees, for whom the law is an objective imposition, an ideal imposed to keep people in line with the will of God, the will of God being to do everything just so. Jairus has no such luxury. For Jairus, the risk of following the law as interpreted by the Pharisees could mean the loss of his daughter, and his daughter is far more precious than some law, however divine it may seem. What would you do for your child? Would you hope for the best, or would you chase down Jesus, who seems to wield the power of God in his hands? Would you plead with Jesus as Jairus did, so that your child would grow up, have a full life? 
For Jairus, the risk of not begging Jesus for help is far too great. He falls on his hands and knees before the feet of Jesus, and Jesus says nothing in response. But he goes with Jairus to see his daughter. Along the way, another crowd begins to gather, and they're all shoving each other, trying to stay close to Jesus while the disciples are trying to keep this show on the road and, and move people far enough away. The hemorrhaging woman, having reached a point of desperation, makes her way through this commotion so that she can receive healing. We know very little about the hemorrhaging woman, even her condition is unclear. Those who have studied this passage back and forth have told us that she's been menstruating for 12 years straight. I live in a home with two women. This is not an exciting prospect. And if you know anything about the ancient world, during a woman's menstrual cycle, she was considered unclean, untouchable. There's a whole chapter in the book of Leviticus devoted to dealing with women during menstruation. And a woman who has a flux of blood, don't you love how it puts it? A woman who has a flux of blood, seven days she shall be in her menstruation, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening, and whatever she touches shall be unclean until evening. On top of this, Leviticus 15, 23 says that if someone touches anything the woman has touched, they will be unclean until evening. And they must also wash all of their clothes that they're wearing when they touch her or something she may have touched. The woman is a contaminant for the whole time during her period, says Levitical law. I spent my fair share of time in quarantine during COVID lockdown, but can you imagine being in quarantine every month for a week or more? And this poor woman rushing on Jesus to grab hold of her garment, she's been in quarantine for 12 years. She was untouchable for the better part of her adult life unclean, an outcast, less than a slave. Jesus stops in his tracks, recognizing, says Mark, that power had gone out of him. The power of God had gone out of him, and the unclean woman had taken it. Right when she grabs hold of Jesus, Mark tells us that the fountain of her blood dried up. Jesus, this one we know to be the fountain of life, who said to the woman at the well that if she would drink of this water, that a fountain would well up within her. This Jesus also dries up the fountains that cause our pain and suffering. And Jesus turns around saying, Who touched me? The unclean woman is standing there and everyone is already backing away from her, fearing that they will become unclean, untouchable with her. One woman is complaining that she had already done laundry that morning and now she has to go wash all of her clothes. If it wasn't obvious to Jesus that it is she who touched him, it certainly is by now. 
Yet Jesus asks anyway. His question is not an accusation. Jesus' question is an invitation. And falling down before Jesus, she makes her confession. And notice what Jesus says. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, not woman, as Jesus often says in the Gospels, even to his own mother. Not unclean, not outcast. Jesus doesn't ask why she touched him. He has no concerns about Levitical purity laws. Jesus says to her, daughter. While we may have progressed from a world of purity laws in our society, we are not so far removed from distancing ourselves from those with whom we would not like to be identified. I was reminded of this reality last evening when we gathered outside on our church lawn with the people of Alianza Agricola. I spoke with someone from the coalition sponsoring the event who mentioned how difficult it has been to get people to realize that migrants, the migrants who work and serve in our communities, they're not trying to get anything more than what is just. What any of us who live and work in this community can expect when we pay our taxes, when we contribute to the well-being of society. Nevertheless, the scientific label of migrant or immigrant conditions our perception. Our understanding of what a person deserves or can expect is based on an all-too-worldly notion of citizenry. It is not enough to be human. It is not enough to bear the image of God. And we make assumptions based on language barriers and the limits of law, rather than altering how we think of ourselves in the light of who these images of God are, who we together can be and become. We may no longer use labels like unclean, but do we relate to others on the premise of a legal structure or by the gospel imperative of Jesus Christ? It is a question, says St. Paul, of fair balance. And as St. Paul goes on to say, we as individuals cannot shoulder the burden of caring for everyone, but we can be advocates. We can share what we have. We can love each person as family because that is who God has made us to be. How do we grow to feel toward others as we feel toward our own children, our own siblings, our own parents? This is the question with which the gospel interrogates us. It begins, I think, as Robin Camara reflects with regard to plants and animals in her marvelous book, Braiding Sweetgrass. It begins with relabeling one another, not as strangers, not as immigrants or migrants, not even as guests, but as brother, sister, mother, as family. Jesus says to the hemorrhaging woman, your faith has healed you. But th then Jesus says, 
Go, be healed of your affliction. She's already been healed, yet Jesus then says, Go and be healed of your affliction. It is not enough to heal the ailments and individual wounds of those around us. The affliction, the suffering that runs deep in our society are the subtle systems that compel us toward certain behaviors toward others. The fictional divisions we create to maintain our felt sense and false sense of security, be they ethnic, political, religious, or Levitical purity law. This remains our affliction today. If we have no peace, writes Mother Teresa, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to one another. The only way that we will learn to feel that we belong to one another is by seeing and doing for each other what comes natural for us to do with our own children, our own siblings, our own parents. For none of these, says Jesus, are our own. Rather, we belong together. We belong together by our shared need of God's love, grace, and mercy. We will know that we have received this love, this grace, this mercy of God by the manner in which we receive others, by the way we share our lives, which are not our own. That is when the fountains of division will dry up so that the fountain of life will spring forth in our lives. Jesus says to Jairus' daughter, little girl, arise. And Jesus says to us today, my children, wake up. Amen. Amen.